Okay, so in last week's share calling, we did something related to Yom Kippur. So it might be appropriate this week's share calling to do something related to Rosh Hashanah. Okay, before we start, I just mentioned there are a couple more source sheets over here if anybody wants. I'm going to put them on the Bima. And there are some uh, particularly nice Hawaiian shirts today. So we'll point out uh, we've got a Noah Bodner as a particularly colorful one. That is quite nice. Way to go. Uh, I like Zeb- I'm partial to Zebis as well. Uh, not sure about Yonis. Okay. Uh, Ely Bird's Flag has a good one. Okay. Excellent. I also have to lodge a formal complaint before we start. I had planned to make fun of Akiva Nelson during this year's and he's not here. This is an unfair tactic on his part. Okay. So uh, we will have to wait till next week. Okay. That's really unfair. Okay. okay. So let's talk. Let's start it with a topic. Josh, you know I was going to make fun of that, right? Yes. Okay, so don't, no, no. Okay. okay, don't tell anybody. Okay, it won't be as much fun next week if everyone knows. Okay. So let's talk about uh, some liturgy trivia for a second. We know that the center of davening is the Amidah, and Amidah tends to have a certain... Oh, I'm sorry, and uh, Jim's purple one is quite nice. I forgot about it. Okay, and the Amidah tends to have a certain amount of brachot. Okay, so what numbers are we... There's really only two numbers we're used to. The average Amidah is how many brachot? 19. Of course, famously, it's still called the Shemona Esrei. Okay, why is that? Because one was added later, it began as 18, and became 19. Okay, excellent. Uh, besides the 19 brachot, there's another model. Okay, we know that on Shabbat and Yom Tov, we switched the whole middle section. So what's the number then all of a sudden? How many brachot are there on Shabbat and Yom Tov? Seven. Why is that? Because we take, it's usually 3, 13, 3. Right, we take out the whole middle 13 and insert 1. So it's 3, 1, 3. So obviously that's 7. Okay, but now comes our liturgy trivia. It's like, like on a game show. I'll take liturgy trivia for a 1,000. Okay, there's only one time all year that we have a different number of brachot. When it's not 19 and not 7. Okay, when is that? Netanel. Oh, which tefillah specifically? Oh, here we go. We got our liturgy expert. Guys, next time you're on the next time you're on that game show, bring the tunnel along. Okay, he'll be ex- he'll be excellent for uh, for that category. Okay, here we go. And we get to the Bo Burnham category. You need no Burnham. Okay, so I know we'll have liturgy and Bo Burnham. You guys are gonna win. Okay, so the only time there's a difference is Rosh Hashanah Musaf. All of a sudden it's nine. Now, how come we get to nine all of a sudden? So it's pretty straightforward. Normally on Shabbat and Yom Tov, we just have one thing. What's the one theme normally? Well, if it's about Tov and Shabbat, then it's about Tov and Yom Tov. But Samuel and Rosh Hashanah, there, on Musaf at least, there are three themes we'd like to get in. And since there are three themes we'd like to get in, each one gets its own bracha. What are the three themes we would like to get in there, guys? What are they famously called? Oh, we see, he really is the liturgy guy. Okay, liturgy ayash, go for it. Ah, okay, that was terrific. What we usually call the third one? Shofron. Are you right? Okay, Malchio, there's a sense of divine kingship in Rosh Hashanah, right? Oh, where's Danny Sachs? We need him. Oh, here we go, guys. Okay, Danny Sachs. Many people, see guys, at your call, you find out all the hidden secrets of the yeshiva. You did not know that Danny Sachs is the closet Chabadnik of the yeshiva. Okay, I bet you did not know that. You all thought it was Ari Tartarka, but no, it is Danny Sachs. What? Oh, it's not closet, that's right, that's the difference. You're right, that's the difference. Okay, so Chabad talks a lot about Rosh Hashanah as Rosh Hashanah as a coronation day. We're coronating, is that fair? We're coronating God as the king? Okay, so we have the Malfiot theme, the theme of kinship. We have the Zichronot theme, which is a little bit harder to define. Either judgment or memory, the Zichronot. And we have the Shofro theme. And apparently all three themes matter, so each one gets its own bracha. 
So all of a sudden we have nine brachot. But not only that, um, it might be hard to remember, guys, but how do we try to illustrate these themes? What do we do during the Shemana right there? Remember, we cite a lot of psukim, right? So for Malkut, obviously, we want psukim about kingship. For Shofrot, we want psukim that allude to the role of Shofar. Okay, so that's what we do. Not only that, we specifically quote psukim from, remember, guys, Torah, Navi, and Tuvim. But here I'm going to ask you a question that's not my topic at all. It is just food for thought. Okay? You can talk to me about it later if you want. We do something really unusual. Okay? Does anyone know what sequence we cite Sukkot? We're trying to convey each theme. And we say we're going to convey each theme from the totality of Tanakh. So we'll have some Chumash Sukkot, some Navi Sukkot, and some Tzukim But what do we do that's quite unusual? Does anybody besides Quincy know? Okay, Quincy, go for it. Yes. Okay. Our whole lives, we always say Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. But on Rosh Hashanah, for whatever reason, we do Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. Check it out this year. If you're bored with Rosh Hashanah, just look at the order of Sukkim and think about why that would be. Okay. How come we have this deviation from the norm? And this could have deep implications, guys. And what is the role of Nevi'im in life? What is the role of Ketuvim in life? Uh, This for you. Where do you go? Sammy Cockler. This view, Sammy. Sammy is concerned about Nevi'im not being emphasized enough in our yeshiva educations. So here we go. Here's something to think about. How did Nevi'im differ from Tuvim? And what would be our sequence in terms of that evaluation? What's the role of Nevi'im? What's the role of Tuvim? How come Rosh Hashanah all of a sudden Tuvim come before Nevi'im? Okay, Sammy, you'll think about it? Okay, great. Okay, so now that we have that, let's get to, and what else do we do, of course, for Malchus, Sifon, and Shofrot? Not only do we write Saib Sukkim, but we blow Shofar. And here there's an interesting split. Okay, we've already discussed how many Sephardim there are in the room, so I think I know that. But besides Sephardim, there might be some Chabadniks, like Dennis X, or other Nusuk Sephardim people who are used to this minhag. I'll do a survey in a second. I'm very curious how many of you have dabbled with this minhag. We boring Ashkenazim. Okay, what, and Nusuk Ashkenaz people. What do we do? We only blow Shofar in the repetition of the Amidah. Correct, guys? We never blow shofar in the private Amidah. We just pray our private Amidah. Ah, we get to the Chazit's repetition. All of a sudden, Malchiot, Zichron, and Shofrot all get to Kiyat Shofar. But I'm going to take a show of hands in a second. If you are Sephardi, or you dive in certain kinds of Nusach Sephardi, Nusach Hari, right, then even in your private Amidah, now you might say, how does that work? So I have an interesting practically. Like, you kind of, if you get to the right spot, you kind of just stand there and wait for everyone to get there. I don't know exactly even how it works practically. And then you have chauffeur blowing even though it's the middle of your private audience. So that's quite fascinating. Just to show of hands, how many people are used to that? Let's see. Oh, that's interesting. Some people don't look so smarty. So let's just check out. Okay. Those who are really smarty, put your hands down. Okay. No, I'm Where do you guys stop it that they do that? Uh, so I used to dog and have like this like a shtibel and like flat bush. Like... Uh, there you go. It might fit a flat bush shtibel. Yeah, where are you familiar with it from? Um, so my name is Kalad. But... Uh, there we go. Wait, Danny, might have some competition over here. Hang in there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, even my uh, shul, my ashram shul. Do you know why the Memphis shul does it? Probably because they're wrong, but... <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Okay. It, say your family, did they become observant through Chabad? Uh, no, no, my family is Chabad from Lubavitch. Oh my God. Um, you say you're not like Chabad, but from white Russia. Yes. That, oh, that's it. He beats Artadarka, he beats you also. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then my parents kind of 
Okay, just out of curiosity, like what's a Chabad custom you guys still do? Wow, okay, everyone knows what that is? Okay, there's an idea that if your masa comes in contact with a liquid, we're afraid it could still ferment and turn into chametz. So certain chasidim are very zealous about, like not say not dipping matzah in your chicken ball soup, right? You guys wear that? Most, you, but if you don't do that, don't worry. You're perfectly from even if you put your matzah in your chicken ball soup. Okay, but for whatever reason, Lubavitch is the one that is most zealous about it. So I wish Ari was here now because he would confirm this. So the real radicals of Chabadics, you know what they do? It's almost like they have their matzah in a bag, like to make sure that, you ever, Caleb, how do you know this? You're feeling, oh my God. The Holy Shiva's Chabad this year. Wait, you guys do it also? Yeah. Oh, wait, you guys are identify Chabad a little bit? I mean, my dad had, like, Chabad background while growing up, so a lot of my customers. Oh, my God. Okay, here we go. I didn't know it was a Chabad year in Yeshiva. Okay, so that's a pretty, like, radical chumrah to say, make sure the matzah comes in no contact with liquid. I'm going to keep it in a little plastic bag when I'm eating my matzah. <laughs> okay. Wait, Kim, you guys do that also? Yeah, because, well, I mean... You, did your family dab not a Chabad? Um... Not usually. I've been on Rabbeinu Tav and Dabari. Wow. Like okay. Uh, and my double dad's family is like part of Chabad and stuff. Josh, you're not even like in the top five Chabadics here, Josh. You might as well just go back to Gemara. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> They're very strict about like not getting like water on the matzah. Like, okay, um, there you go. Just Rafi, what are you, what are you guys talking about? Wait. My brother Shul blows over the private army dot. Yeah, they, they definitely start. <laughs> wow, it's worth the Yeshiva Day just to find that out. I did not know they do that. Okay. Yeah, where are you familiar with it from? I don't like Chabad, so. Ah, okay. Really? A lot of Chabadics here. Wait, there's a Chabad in like the heart of Atlanta? No, it's like suburb. Where do you guys live? Oh. Okay. Great. All right, so that was just a guy that discussed with your local Chabadniks. Okay, but again, but we do, so we have to catch so far. So let's just think, guys, we're going to analyze two things today. When we talk about this Musaf that has Malchir Tzachon Shofro, we've got two components, right? We've got the Tkiat Shofar component, and we've got the, let's call it Psukim and Brachot component, okay? The liturgical component and the action mitzvah component. And we're going to compare the two and ask how they integrate with each other. Okay, so let's start with a comparison. So if you don't mind, we'll actually start with Source 3. Okay, we'll go a little bit out of order. Okay, because Source 3 and 3 already lays out how these two things compare to each other. Says source three, U mitzvah betoken yoter minamavarchid. What's a bigger mitzvah? The act of blowing the shofar is more significant than the three brachot, than the brachot of Malkin Shabbat Shofar. So the says, what's a test case, right? In the world of logic, like, Gemara's like philosophy, you always want a test case. Ketzad, shtei ayarot, you've got two cities, ba'achat token uva'achat mavarchid. One city, you know, has a good shofar blower, the other one doesn't. And the other city has the brachot. Maybe like it's a world without sidurim. Maybe the city with the shofar guy has nobody who knows the brachot. So if you go to one, you'll get to get shofar. If you go to the other one, you're going to get the brachot. So what do you do? Says the Gemara. Okay, so I always love this in life. I, always love, I don't know why, but I'm intrigued by clashes of values. Because then you really see like what really matters in your system. Like what wins in a clash. So apparently you always have a clash between the tkiot and the brachot. What about this according to the Gemara? The Tkiot. Apparently, the Tkiot are more significant. But then the Gemara goes a step further. The Gemara says, Pshita. What kind of objection is Pshita? Meaning, this is too obvious for words. Now, again, it wasn't too obvious to me. Why is the Gemara so obvious that the Tkiot should win? So the Gemara says, Hadaraita, Hadarabanan. 
Okay, so again, indeed, there are a lot of ways of having clashes in halacha, but certainly the easiest way to settle something is a deraita weighs more than a drabanata. So what's the claim at this point, guys? Blowing shofar is a biblical mitzvah. Reciting these nice brachot is a rabbinic condition. Obviously, a deraita would be a drabanata. Okay, so that is stage one. Guys, we're going to get deeper as we go along here, but it seems pretty straightforward that shofar blowing is more significant in our system. It is the right to say these brachot is very nice, but it's a rabbinic thing. Okay, R.E.B. Just to clarify, you're saying blow the shofar in the middle of these things. Ah, so we're, we're heading there in a minute, guys. Notice what R.E.B. just said. File that away. It's going to be crucial for analysis. He said the two things I'm saying are not really so independent. Don't we tend to integrate them a little bit? Because what do we do after we finish each of the three things? We finish Malchiot and we blow the shofar. We finish the chrono and we blow the shofar. Now you might, now here's another thing guys, when you're a deep thinker, you realize just because you're used to something doesn't mean you shouldn't ask good questions about it. That, we don't find that as being strange because we all grew up with it. I'm going to give you an example which, tell me if you think this is a good parallel example. Would it be the same if on Pesach we said, oh, look what we do in Rosh Hashanah. We sneak in the main ritual act in the middle of Amidah. Let's do the same thing. So what should we do on Pesach in the middle of Amidah? Let's nash the matzah. Okay, we'll take a little pause in the middle of Amidah. Nash the matzah and move on. Okay, now as you know, that's crazy. We don't eat matzah in the middle of the Amidah. Well, why don't we blow shofar in the middle of the Amidah? Okay, so that's also something to think about, right? If we do this integrationist move, is there some theme lurking there why it makes more sense to blow shofar in the middle of Amidah than it makes sense to eat matzah in the middle of Amidah? Okay, R.E.B. I think it was two points. I uh, cut you off? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I have to learn to be a more patient person. It's really terrible. So, isn't it true that one of the themes itself is Shofar? So, why is Shofar? Okay. Sorry, has an excellent point. I'm saying there seems to be some integrationist model here. Well, if it's Malchia, Tzachon, and Shofro, it's certainly not a stretch to say, let's integrate Shofar blowing into a theme called Shofar. That is not a stretch in the slightest. Okay, and then maybe from there, somehow, we get to Malachi and Zechonot. Very good. But we'll see, I think, even deeper why the integration model works. Yeah? But it's like Rashida on the right of the Rabbana, and then I don't say lots of that it's so obvious to me that it's the Mitzvah Tayyong, the Brachot are just like, even if they weren't right, even if they were the right they're not the Indian of what we're trying to do. Okay, great. So I think Quincy's raising an interesting point, which might help our understanding of the Chagim. The Chagim have different symbols, different mitzvot. It might be interesting, I don't know if we have to do this, but could it kind of reduce each Chag to its essential symbol? And I'll tell you where this might be interesting, because I think some of them might not be so clear what it is. But uh, who's an artist here? We need a good artist. Who's Shana Alka is a good artist? Oh, where, where, where's um, Izzy? Is Izzy here? Oh, uh, Natalia, you're also a good doodler? Okay, oh, John Wayne, you did. So anyway, you're like a multi-talented guy. Okay, you do Chinese drama, okay, uh, doodling art. You're like the Daniel Berger of the year. Okay, I know he's not here, but uh, you tell me he got a nice quad. Okay, very good. Okay, so let's hear Natano. Natano likes Judaism, he likes art. So he says, I'm going to do this artistic portrait of the Chagin. But what will I need if I'm going to do an artistic portrait of the Chagin? Maybe I need to pick for each Chag the item that I think is the item of... So I'll tell you where it might get interesting. Here's where a good thought experiment could be helpful. Rosh Hashanah, we would all draw the chauffeur, right? We wouldn't go with the apple and honey. We would say, no, the chauffeur is where it's really at. Okay, what about Sukkot's interesting, because you might have a little bit of a conflict. Would you say the sukkah, or would you say Arbabinim, right? The little bit of a joke. Okay, so you could have a little bit of a conflict in Sukkah. 
But anyway, I'm, I'm pausing some here. Right? Obviously, you could all claim to me we don't have to pick one. But, but for the sake of argument, okay, what about where things will also be interesting? What about Pesach? What are you guys saying? Matzah. So you could go with matzah. Anyone make it? Ah, very good. So what Noah just said is very interesting. Arguably, someone could say there's a shift between a Beit HaMikdash world and a non-Beit HaMikdash world. That would I live at the time of the Beit HaMikdash, I would think the essential symbol is the carbon Pesach. In Ruvim and Mikdash, then the essential symbol kind of shifts. For us, we experience the essential symbol as being the matzah. Okay, so I think Quincy is on to something. It would be interesting. Could we do that? Uh, just one more thing, just food for thought. I just can't resist interesting questions. Which Chag will create a particular conundrum for Natana? I would say Shavuot. Guys, why will Shavuot create a conundrum for Natana? So this is a fascinating question. I gave sharing this last year. Shavuot doesn't really seem to have any ritual acts. Like, why is that? Like, Chagim. Okay, so that's a good example, guys. I am as big a fan of cheesecake as the next guy. Actually, I'm probably a bigger fan of cheesecake. Than this guy. But at the same time, cheesecake is a very nice custom. Like, it would be a mistake to give a sheer on Hilko cheesecake. Like, amayose if it's, you know, cherry cheesecake. Right? There's no such question. Why? <laughs> okay. He says there's no such question because obviously the answer is. Why is there no such question? Because it's not a halachic mitzvah to eat cheesecake. It's a very nice custom that developed. You couldn't talk about the parameters of the law. Shvud essentially doesn't really have mitzvah to say associated with it. So, the tunnel for your art project now, we got a little um, mystery for you. You have to figure out how to deal with Shvud. Okay, yeah, no. Is there a mitzvah where any sort of Taiwan should be a Snyder? No, that's also a later minhag. Um, in fact, just, I should say this, guys. The fact that something's a later minhag doesn't mean you can't really like it. I always say there's two questions in life. There's like a formal halachic question, and then there's an experiential question. And I am not such a halachic man that I say it's a problem if there's like an exact correspondence between the formal law and the experiential part of the law. And this is a great example, right? I, I actually love the minhag of staying up when I learn. I know you guys cannot like it. I, I'm a night person, so it's not a problem for me. I admit I, I, admit I do not like davening after staying up when I learn. But I do enjoy learning. Even at 4 in the morning, I'm still enjoying it. Okay, so for me, that's great. But if you ask me, is that the essence of Shavuot? No, that's also a later minhag. No, nobody in time of the Gemara knew about this minhag to stay up all night and study Torah. So formally, it's not really part of Shavuot. But I would agree, for us experientially, maybe that's the essence of, of Shavuot. Okay, we're good? Okay, so getting back over here. So Quincy says it's just obvious the chauffeur is where it's at. Okay, so let's leave that aside. What do we have so far in terms of our evidence? That shofar is the right there, where these brachot and tefillot are only drubbing on. Okay, next. Now, how does the Torah describe uh, what we're supposed to do? What, where do we even get the idea of shofar from? There's two terms used in different psukim. Do you remember what the terms are? The term is not shofar. What kind of day is Rosh Hashanah meant to be? So one person says it's supposed to be a... Very good, whoever said that. Yom Chua. A day of blowing. Okay, so that sounds like a shofar day. What is the parallel pasuk? It doesn't say it's a yom chua, it says it's a zichron chua. Now that might be something else. In theory, how might you interpret what a zichron chua is? I'm remembering it, I'm mentioning it. Arguably not necessarily blowing the shofar. So look at Rashi in Pasuk 4. Rashi says in a little radical. Rashi says, what is zichron chua? Zichron 
How do I do this? Psukei zichronot, upsukei shofrot. So what does it sound like according to Rashi? Oh, yom shua might be about blowing the shofar. But zichronot is about a liturgical recital. But doesn't that sound that Rashi thinks that it's from the Torah? Right? That's how I fulfill zichronot. Okay, we're good, guys. Oh, I forgot to point out just two fine alumni in the corner. Jordan Kimmy, you know already, from Stanford. And that's David Lewis, who goes to the University of Chicago. If anyone wants to consider University of Chicago, go speak to David Lewis. Okay? Excellent. Okay, so now the Ramban is very upset. So look what Ramban says in 5. Lashon Rashi. What's Midivrehem? This whole principle is really... Who's Divrehem? Their words, namely... The rabbis. Like, what's Rashi doing? We know from the other Gemara we already saw that the Sukkim, the Brachot, are Rabbanan. Why is Rashi treating them as the right? Okay, now I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to get to a conflict. Because I think there's going to be a great uh, example of, how, again, in Gemara you can learn how to analyze. Okay. Sometimes even like categories. There's going to be three categories of potential solutions to conflict. We'll see that in one second. Okay, everyone go to source six. Okay, I'm even going to skip the whole debate and just get to one line. Okay, we blow shofar from Malchiot to Chodah and Shofrot. Okay, Rabbi Akiva is arguing with one of the other Tanaim, Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri. Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri thought that we, do, we don't blow shofar from Malchiot without getting into wine. Everyone's to read the whole Mishnah and get into wine. He thought we blow for Chodah and Shofrot, we blow a different time, but we don't blow for Malchiot. So look what Rabbi Akiva says to him in source six. I'm two lines in the bottom. Amala Rabbi Akiva, em eno tokele Malchiot, if you're not going to blow for Malchiot, what does Bikiva seem to think? It is now pointless to even mention, meaning don't bring up the Malchiot theme unless you're going to blow shofar. It becomes pointless. But look at the response. So the Gemara says, kind of in shock, why should I mention it? Now, let's do the literal translation, but what it means really means. What does it literally mean? The merciful one said, to remember it or mention it. Okay, what does it sound like now? Once again, that's the right Okay, now before I, get, I raise the question of the crowd, how do we solve conflicts? How do we solve contradictions? I have to do one more Aramaic move, I'm sorry. But you guys have to learn a little Aramaic this year. So we have now learned two Aramaic rules last week. We learned that shin sounds in Hebrew tend to become tough in Aramaic. And we have learned that you put an alf at the end and all of a sudden, it's Aramaic. Ah, I'll even teach you some Arabic. How's that, guys? For a free your coin. Okay? Where Hebrew has a shin sound and Aramaic has a tough sound, Arabic tends to have a th sound. You guys with me so far? Yeah? I'll show you. Oh, is it? You are here. Sorry. Okay? Here's how you could really use this to your advantage. Okay? So the first time in my life, I took an Uber in Manhattan. Okay? I was schmoozing with my Uber driver. And he was from Yemen. And we didn't have that much in common, okay? So I wasn't sure exactly what we were going to make conversation about. So I said to him, I know how to say snow in Arabic. Now, I had no idea this is snow in Arabic, but I figured I'd plug in my rule. So he's very curious. Like, how does this rabbi from Israel know how to say snow in Arabic? So he said, how do you say it? So I say, obviously it's falga. And he said, that's totally right. Now, why is it obviously falga? Again, so in Hebrew, you have sheleg. You put in my two rules, you've got Aramaic, and it's Talga, right, in Aramaic. So in, you plug it into Arabic, and all of a sudden it's Talga. Serious? Next time you guys are with a Yemenite camp driver, just try putting my rules, see if it works. Okay, take some term and tell me you notice in Arabic, and you're good to go. Okay, so now, one more rule. Okay, 
This is not as common, it does happen a lot. Zions in Hebrew tend to often be Dalids in Aramaic. So notice, we're talking about Zikron, Lizkar, what do we keep having here? Rachman Amar, Idkar, which is really Izkar, okay? Just to give another example, if you get this, guys, you deserve an extra dessert at lunch, okay? How do you think you say gold in, Ar- in Aramaic, not Arabic? How do you say gold in, in Aramaic? Dahava. Because what do you take? You take Zahav, the Zion becomes a Dahav, and you have an Aleph there. Okay, so gold is Dahav. Okay, well, good? Okay, great. So now let's go back right here. Let's, again, review what the contradiction is. And you guys will tell me, in general, in the world of logic, what are ways to resolve a contradiction? So what do we have? We have a contradiction whether these brachot are the right or not. Everyone agrees blowing the shofar is the right. What about these brachot? Where did we see the contradiction? So on the one hand, what did one Kumar say? If I have a choice between tkiot and brachot, what's obvious? Go with the tkiot. Because the tkiot are the right and the brachot are... Okay, great. But now we had a line where someone says, why should I mention it? The Torah said to mention it. And we had a Rashi that said, we derive from Zichrom Trua, that I'm supposed to say, the Psukim and the Brachot. Okay, so let's ask you a question, guys. If source A indicates something, and source B indicates something else, okay, give me, in very, I know this is very too broad in general, let's see if it works. Give me broad and general categories, how might I work for that? Why does source A and source B conflict? No, bring back. Okay, excellent. I'll say it a little bit differently. Maybe it's different authors, right? You know, Gemara could have, this is Rabbi Yochanan, this is Rish Lakish. So even anonymous Gemaras might come from two different sources. Okay, so maybe it's simply a debate. That is certainly one way of resolving the contradiction. Yeah? Isn't that still a debate? Huh? Isn't that still saying they debate each other? No, but sometimes I'll have a debate about like, a large point. Okay, but you guys, what, what would be a way to try to neutralize any debate, though? Yeah, are you? Uh, excellent. What if I say they're talking about different cases? That's why one came to one conclusion, one to the other conclusion. The third method is to reread one of the sources. To claim, you think it says X, but really it says Y. Do you have an agree? This is important for Tanakh also. Those of you in my Chumash, will discuss in Chumash. I think in general, those are the three logical ways of dealing with contradiction and conflict. Again, either it's two different authors, or they're not really talking about the same case, or you misread one of the sources. Really, the two sources say the same thing. Okay? Someone want to comment? What? We will just, when we get to Tanakh, we'll discuss that. Okay? All right, here we go. You know, it's the same thing. I just do this just because the second week to give you guys a good time. Okay, it's the same thing with popular music. Okay, who here is an expert on the Beatles? Anyone? Not a single guy? What? Okay, this this is one of my hidden prides in life, and people do not give me credit for this. I discovered a contradiction in the Beatles, which people are not aware of. Okay, in one of the more famous songs, the Beatles sing, Money Can't Buy Me Love. Correct? You guys familiar with that song? Yes. Haven't followed it away? Okay, so you got Source One. Source One says, Money Can't Buy Me Love. Okay, but they have another song that's much more obscure. It's one of their greatest songs. Okay, does anyone know the song, She's Leaving Home? Okay, go Google it afterward. She's Leaving Home, listen to it. Very deep song. Okay, and She's Leaving Home, there's a line that says, Fun is the one thing money can't buy. Okay, that one good so far? Okay, so source one says, money can't buy me love. And source two says, fun is the one thing money can't buy. 
But those two sentences contradict each other, right? If fun is the one thing money can't buy, how could it be that money can't buy me love, right? So we've got a problem now. So I, I would say that, and I believe I'm the first person to catch this. I really deserve more. I deserve more credit in Beatles work. Okay. So if you think about it, you could plug in. You could plug in all three answers, right? What could one say? Oh, that's easy. One was written by John. One was written by Paul. Right. That would be that would be the first approach. Can we try a different approach? What else might you say? Yeah, Danny? Oh, excellent. What if I reread one? Right, isn't that the third strategy we mentioned? Oh, you think they're against each other, but what if love and fun are somehow identified? So they don't really contradict each other, right? The clever reading will realize they really don't contradict each other. Why we, let's, the third category is not as obvious, but let's try plugging the third category. Well, it depends in what context. I know one is between the ages of 20 and 50 and between the age of 50 and 80, the same right? And therefore, it's not really so. So all contradictions like life, even Beatles contradictions lend themselves to the same three categories. What? Or they were dropping acid, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we don't like those cynical approaches. Well, they Oh, you know the second song? Yeah. Uh, Quincy, you're a knowledgeable guy. You grew up with it because of your parents? No, in England. You think every English kid would know she's leaving home? No, that's not. No, Dawson. Hi, Santa. Do you know she's leaving home? Manchester. Oh. Oh, that means. Wait, isn't. Uh, wasn't McCartney from Manchester? No, Oh, Liverpool. You're right. Forget that. Go from Liverpool. So why. Okay, Liverpool is geographically closer to Manchester than London. Very close. Okay. So that's fair. That's interesting. The Beatles mania didn't make it down to London. Wow, it's only the northern part of the country. Okay, we're good, guys. So with now that we have those three possibilities, let's plug it in over here. Okay, we're good, guys. Let's plug it in over here. Okay. All right. You know, I usually save that for later in the year. It was just it was too tempting to pass up. Okay. So can anyone try to plug in any of the three over here again? Source one said, well, the Tzkiot are the Raita and the Brachot are the Rabbanan. And then you have Rashi and maybe another Gemara saying that the Brachot slash Pesukim are... Right, so the first one's very easy. Okay, this is my focus in the rabbinic tradition. Can anyone plug in either of the other two answers? Is the way to reread one of the sources? Well, think about it, guys. If you have one source that indicates the right dog and one source that indicates the rabbinan, what are we? What's a move we frequently do in those scenarios with the right to source for the sake of argument? Don't we often say that even though you seem to derive it from Sukim, we had this last week, right? Really, it's just asmachta. I mean, it's an illusion. It, you're, it's not really being derived from Sukim. That's just a rabbinic device that will take it seriously, so that we'll remember it. So that you get in the Rashba in Source 7. So if you go to the second page, please. Okay, this Rashba cites this contradiction. And then he says, on the first line of sort, the second uh, side, V'nirli mishum shero chacham lo mermachet He uses the phrase, V'asmechinu akra. what they do? They put it, they ha- hung it on a basok. So he would claim any of the source that say it's the writer don't really mean that it's the writer. They, they didn't really mean it, they just wanted you to take it seriously. Look what he says even here, guys. There's the key word. Guys, you cannot get around modern Israel unless you know that word. What is ke'ilu? As if. Right? You ask an Israeli in a store, I want to buy X. He says, we don't have X, but we have Y. But don't worry, Y is... Ki'ilu X. It's as if it's the same thing. 
So the claim is that none of the sources that said the right really meant it. Okay, we got the Rashba down? Okay, so now the third one, we're talking about the third one's going to be the most interesting. Okay, we had this contradiction, the Psukkim, the Brachot, are they the right to the Rabbanan? Answer one, oh, it's just a Machloket, Rashba. Any source that said it the right didn't really mean it. It was the Rabbanan that were taken very seriously. Yeah, no. I don't think you have to say that Rashi's saying that the Brachot are the You mean, are very clever. No one's saying that maybe the Psukkim, the Brachot are two separate things. Is that the question? Okay, that's an excellent point. In terms of careful reading, it's very good because Rashi didn't talk about the Brachot, he talked about the Psukkim. I guess you have to write out certain terms of reading, you're right. Does it work out logically that the Psukkim are more significant than the Brachot? But maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. That was very clever, no. Okay. Anyone have another country? solution before we see Rav Salvechik's famous Kiddush? Everyone good so far? Okay, guys. Rav Salvechik is a famous Kiddush that will argue has philosophical implications also. Let's look at Rav Salvechik in source 8. Okay? It says Rav Salvechik something very clever. These brachot, habi deraita, they are biblical. Okay, but again, he's going to say they're only biblical in a specific context. What's the context where they're biblical? I want you know this word. What's bitsiruf? What's litzaref things? To join together. What's the claim? What will raise the level of these brachot and psukim? What will make them Doraita? <laughs> ah, we noticed before this unusual integration. What if I say integration is not just unusual, but it makes the thing what it is? That it raises the level. Meaning, how are the Brachot and Psukim supposed to be experienced? Adjacent to Shoferboy. So if I could integrate them with Shoferboy, what kind of mix am I fulfilling? Doraita. But when I can't. Integrating them with What am I fulfilling? Why is this a great answer? Because think about it. What was the case that indicated Doraita, guys? A case where I was choosing between Kiot in one town and Brachot in the other town. By definition, in that scenario, what was true about the Brachot? They weren't being integrated. That's very clever, right? By definition, they weren't being integrated with Kiot. That's why, for Rav Salvechik, that's why it'd be rabbinic in that case. Because it's only Doraita when it's integrated. Now, I'll take comments in one second. Let's review the three answers once again. One source indicated this part is Doraita. One source indicated it is the Rabbanan. What would be three possible answers? Again, Machloket. We have a debate. Answer two, they don't really contradict each other because I could reread one source. Doraita never meant... The right, that's the Rashba. Answer three, approach like Noah, or approach like the Rav, which would say, no, they're not contradictory because they're two different scenarios. Noah went to differentiate between the Psukim and the Brachot. Rav Salvechik would say, it's the Psukim and the Brachot together, but there's when they're integrated with Shofar and when they're not integrated with Shofar. When they're integrated, they're the right, When they're not integrated, it's the Rabbanan. I'm going to explain why in a second, what the deeper idea here is. And that works great with that Gemara, with the two different towns. Since it's not integrated, in that case, it was very specifically... Okay, any comments or questions on that before we move on? Uh, a little flurry of Shunabed comments. Joshi, the sixth place Chabadnik in Yeshiva, what do you say? So according to the Rav's Look, I think if you have to wait three minutes, we don't have to do that as a grand interruption. We can still view that as kind of integrated. Okay, Quincy. I don't understand the case of just the Rahot without the Tikiyah, but surely it would be brought up. 
Surely you'd be? Why? If the rough is right, you're saying? If Rav Salvechik's right? Or according to anybody? Why? What if it's independent value to, we like those brachot and sukim per se? Not just in... in Guess what? We won't, if we don't have a chauffeur one day, we won't make that bracha. No, but that's what I'm saying. The case of the Russian and Lama Dalit says that you have to choose between a city that's saying Rashbot and a city that's saying that's doing Kiyat. Yeah. A city that's saying Rashbot are just saying about the Rashbot and the Talat because there's no Kiyat. No, they're not making the. Which Rashbot are we talking about? Not a Sher Kitcham, sort of let's call it the Shmob and Kosher Kar. I should make that clear to anybody. Which Rashbot are we talking about here, guys? The Brachot of the Amidah. Oh, wait, one more point before I get to more comments. Let's say you think, like Quincy, that the whole thing should break down when we vote at the Home Post Guys, who remember, if you remember this, you really remember. You know what? We're going to make Sean a bet ineligible for a second. Okay? And Natano might get this because he is our litur- liturgy man. Okay? Can anyone tell me, we all experience this, a Rosh Hashanah without the Shofar, but with Brachot. When do we all experience that? Excellent, Jonah. Right? Isn't it true that we all do that when Rosh Hashanah and Shabbat overlap? Right, we don't blow shofar for shofar last and shabbat, but we still say the entire liturgy. So there we have a model of the psukim and the brachot without kedushah. We all do that on some level. Okay, R. E. B. Um, so in the case where we had, uh, the, the, the we were talking about, we got to uh, present that they don't say the brach of Matthias and you don't need to uh, blow the shofar. Can we go like? A step further in the sense that not only does shofar like, make the bracha like, together, it's for Isa, but I guess like without the shofar, the bracha kind of becomes meaningless. Well, again, you want to do far because if it's meaningless, we shouldn't say it at all. What? Isn't that what the Gemara is saying? No, it's, it's saying it's less meaningful, not that it's meaningless. So one, right? One opinion says it not say the bracha at all. Oh, wait, you're talking about the Rabbi Kiva Gemara and not yeah, the. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ignore it for now. It's interesting what Rikiva was arguing. Gemara then changes Rikiva's argument. Read to the end of the Gemara. God. Would you say that not the name of the Rikiva would be going to the Rikiva? No, because again, everyone's agreeing that it's still valuable, just that it's not as valuable. Right. Okay, so look, I guess we Ashkenazim say as long as we integrate it in the repetition of Namida, that's good enough. That's where it's really at. Right, don't guess. Can I just clarify? Maybe all, all you were thinking right now that all the Chabadniks in the Sephardim are right. Because they're integrating it even in, right? Caleb every year is integrated in the private Amidah. So I guess, how would we defend ourselves? All right, but as long as you integrate it in the repetition, that gets the job done. Even if you don't integrate it in the private Amidah. Right, that's what we would say. Why, why? Who says you have to integrate it multiple times? Maybe one integration gets it done. Yeah, but maybe the right to level, we have to do one act of integration. Okay, but maybe even Quintus Friday, that's true. Maybe once you do it once, it's like, you know, maybe once you took the Arba Minim once, taking it a second time is not like extra credit necessarily. But it would still be the same level. Wait, not every mitzvah. Okay, let's say it's tricky here. There's some mitzvah, every time I do it, I'm adding to mitzvah. Let's say Talmud Torah is like that. Not every mitzvah is like that. Let's say, God, for the sake of mind, you love matzah consumption. After you've had your kazayat or your two kazaytim on Seder night, it is not a mitzvah to eat eight more kazaytim. Right? It is a hachli neutral act altogether. Right? So it could be once we're done, we're done. Okay? Yeah, of course. I'm just curious, where else do you find the model of like, 
Okay, I'm going to give you a, a lousy analogy. I admit it's a bit analogy, but it's the best I could come up with. Guys, let's say when you're in Sukkot, let's go back to Sukkot. Let's say when you're in Sukkot, our community does not have a kosher etrog in the entire community. Okay, so what do I do now? So on a technical halakhic level, guys, what would I do? Let's say I have the other three. The reality is sometimes in life having three quarters of something is having zero. Right. It's not always it's not always true that you have 75%. To use even a worse analogy, it's like in baseball. Like let's say someone hits a ball, I don't know, 370 feet and it's caught by the center fielder. And you're very lumbish. You say, had I hit it 400 feet, it's a homer. So 370 feet must be a triple. Right? No, it doesn't work that way. Like a homer is a threshold. Either you pass the threshold or you didn't pass the threshold. There's no such thing as three quarters of a home run. Okay, so now arbaminum is like that. There's no worth it whatsoever. Arguably, there's no worth to three quarters of, of arbaminum. But let's say for the sake of argument, Boaz, the Rabbanan had said, take three quarters of it. So that would be the same thing, right? It's only Doraita when they're integrated. But when they're not integrated, we do the best we can and we do some kind of rabbinic fulfillment. I mean, that was very theoretical, but I'm just trying to show how Allah could, in theory, think in those terms. Okay? Everybody good? Okay, now we get to the deeper point here. Why would it be? Let's go back to my matcha question. I said it's very unusual that we'll take this main symbol and do it smack in the middle of Amidah. We blow shofar in the middle of Amidah. And yet, we would never eat matzah in the middle of the Amidah. So, you guys made a good point. I think it was Ari Berman. Well, if one of the themes is shofrot, it doesn't seem so far. That was an excellent point. Can anyone tell me another argument? why somehow chauffeur blowing could integrate more successfully than eating matzah. What is it, or if you can have like a deeper idea of how we conceive of blowing a chauffeur? Yes, but Yeah, I remember when I saw the chauffeur being at a fall, it's like two dots like that. So I had like part of the speed on it. Oh, terrific. Okay. No? I mean, as we explained before, Pesach is only something, or sorry, Matzah is only something that we do nowadays. It wasn't a part of the Pesach. Okay, good. Okay, excellent. But I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Boaz's approach. Okay, so Boaz says, you probably already this yet, maybe in a certain sense, chauffeur blowing is itself a kind of prayer. It's a kind of calling out. And it would be very hard to view Matzah eating as a kind of prayer. And if that's true, it makes much more sense to integrate chauffeur blowing into Dhamidah than to try to integrate matzah eating into Dhamidah. So once again, Rav Soloveitchik says this, and he says, I think, a powerful idea. Uh, Quincy, this is for you, because you like the philosophy of language. But I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with Wittgenstein, but I'm going to say it again. Okay, but you could just, right after Shir, you could just say the word Wittgenstein if you want to. Okay, it's a fun name to say. Okay, so in any case... Uh, what if I say as follows, guys? What do we know? What is the language is the greatest thing in the world and the most frustrating thing in the world? Okay, it's the greatest thing in the world, of course, because it's how we communicate. Okay, arguably that makes us different from the entire animal kingdom. Okay, at the same time, why is language difficult? Because we often feel it doesn't really capture what we're trying to say. It's never 100% precise, right? Imagine, guys, here's the easiest example. You're trying to describe an experience. You're trying to describe to somebody how good, I know, uh, dessert was in uh, some restaurant. Okay, that's what you're trying to describe, right? So you really feel like my words never really capture what the experience is like. Okay, and deeper experiences also. You're trying to describe how good it felt when you did some chesed program, right? Can you really capture it in words? And maybe everything we feel like words are the best we can do. 
But there's an inherent limitation in the world of language. So if that's true, and here where things get up, the neo Hasidim will like this also. So even though I struggle with this, what might be a way to feel like we're overcoming that hurdle? If we have some kind of wordless mode of expression. Because it's language that is both expressive and constricting at the same time. Right? Language expresses what we're feeling, and it constricts to the meaning of that specific word. So that's why, even though I, mean, I struggle with this, I prefer songs that have words. But a chassid might say, the, the holiest song is the wordless song. It's just the tune. Because then the argument would be, tunes don't restrict you in the way that words and language restrict you. You could make such an argument. That guy's not a crazy argument. Now, if we take the argument now and plug it into the shofar, what can we say now? If shofar is a prayer, shofar might actually be, as it were, the most eloquent form of prayer. Because shofar would be a form of prayer which is not restricted by the constrictions of language. So now I think Rav Salvechik has said a very powerful idea. And here's what I like, guys, when halach and makshava mix. Because what's Rav Salvechik saying? That A, we'll put three ideas together, guys. Shofar is a prayer. Since shofar is a prayer, therefore, it's not foreign for it to be in the middle of the Amidah. Number two, maybe it's not just a prayer. Maybe in some sense, it's the quintessential prayer. Because it's prayer that escapes the limitations of language. And number three, doesn't that feel the Rosh halakhic idea? When the Brachot and Tfilo take on their highest level, when they're integrated with Shofar. But if we Shofar as some kind of super prayer, that makes sense. Right? We're trying to integrate it into the world of Tfilo. So when I have the Brachot and Tfilo alone, that's nice, but that's rabbinic fulfillment. But when I can integrate that into Shofar blowing, then all of a sudden, it is Doraita. So again, we have Slavetic's halakhic solution to a problem, but then Rav Slavetic fits into a larger idea about the nature of language and the nature of experience. Okay, Ari Berman. Um, uh, do we see this model, uh, because there is an idea that only prayers normally that's a would be like calling out Hashem in times of need. So yeah, the Ramban thinks that. Right, so if you feel like that can kind of, because like a normal prayer is just religious words. Look, that's very interesting. I, I would have thought the Ramban is still talking about words, just words in response to crisis. But, but it's clever what you're saying, though. It's something that goes a little bit beyond just a standard text, but something that's more experiential. Like no, that's not bad. You know what? I guess I'm just going to... Boys, give me two minutes. I'm just going to expand a little bit. I'm throwing one of the greater stuff. Let me check the end, then we'll bring things to a close here. Is that a trencher? Uh, poor guy, I was going to call him out, and he's not here. Okay. Uh, David Trencher, what are you doing out there? Okay, come back for a second. Hey, Sammy. Okay, guys, I just want to highlight, I know I wear suspenders every now and then. David Trencher's suspenders are much nicer than mine. I have to figure out where to buy them for the ones. Okay, we'll have to work it out. It's not so easy, by the way, to find a good suspender store in the state of Israel. Okay, it, it is not so easy. Okay, but uh, in any case, um, I'll tell you another beautiful Russell idea. Okay, what was um, Ari just referring? So you guys might have heard the Rambam thinks it's a mitzvah to pray once a day. Okay, you guys read that? Point the Rambam is a biblical mitzvah to pray once a day. The Ramban thinks there's no biblical mitzvah to pray once a day, but there's a biblical mitzvah to pray when you're in time of distress. Okay, there are religious person we turn to God. Everyone got it so far? So that's the Ramban. There's only a mitzvah when there's a time of distress. So I, what would most people say before Rav Salvechik? That they're debating what causes the need to pray. For Rav Salvechik, you don't need to be in distress to pray. 
Prayer is just part of religious life. You pray once a day, whether you're having the greatest time or the worst time. Where the Ramban would say, no, for a religious person, it's really distress that brings out the requirement to prayer. And therefore, prayer is only a mitzvah in a Torah when you're in distress. Ah, but as you guys know, what kind of philosopher was Rabbi Soloveitchik? He was existential philosopher, which means he loved conflict, right? Those think religion is all about harmony. Have to read footnote four in Halakhic Man. Okay, I know I just sent it to Zisha, but everybody in the room has to read footnote four. I'm sorry, actually. If you're not having any existential crisis, you don't have to read footnote four. Only the guys who are having existential crisis, you have to read footnote four. Okay, uh, but what do you have? And again, remember, guys, nothing to be embarrassed about if you're not having an existential crisis. It's okay. Okay, so uh, let's go back now for a second. Okay, um, what might you say if you like conflict? Why does the Rambam disagree with Ramban? Again, Ramban says, I only have to pray if there's a famine, if there's a war. That's when there's a mitzvah to pray. But if life's just going on, I don't have a mitzvah. And the Rambam says, no, every day. One might be a different take on Rambam, Rafi Snowbell. Every day. Ah, you understand the world, Rafi Snowbell. The Rub says, that's what it means to be a human being. You are always in crisis, right? The crisis might not be that there's an invading army, right? The crisis might not be that there's a famine, but life is difficult and life is challenging and one never really escapes. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that life is always falling apart. Of course not. But I'm always addressing some kind of difficulty and therefore, a religious person would turn to God. So I've got the second, we've got two good Rav Slavich Kedushim today, guys. Hope you can start to appreciate Rav Slavich. Number one, that shofar might be the quintessential prayer, and that's why it integrates with the bronco and sukkim of Malchi Yitzchak and Shafrot. Number two, the second idea, which I didn't plan on raising, but once I already made the point, that maybe for, for the Rambam, right, prayer is a response to the daily crisis of a human being. And maybe that's a deeper understanding of what really it means to be human, humanity. Okay, boss. Not for us, Because I said that rubber? Because I said that rubber? No, it was like before, and it's not like... No, but it, I guess the question, I, I was wondering if someone was going to argue that. I feel like I, I don't appreciate music enough, but I was wondering if someone's going to tell me, maybe it's not a crazy argument. What do you guys think? That tunes are also restricted, right? The, because the tune only lends itself to a certain emotional range and not to. A different emotional range. Which, what do you think? Is that a good argument or not such a good argument? Do you think tunes are as restricting as language? Maybe the answer is yes. I would say it's not as restricting. You're Right. Okay, so that is an interesting question. Maybe that's an interesting critique to think about. Do we think that Rav Soloveitchik were not really escaping the restrictions of language by just having a wordless tune? Yeah, no, Bono, what do you think? Although, couldn't you argue there are different language words, I could, different vocabularies I could use? At a certain use? point, you run out of words. Oh, that's interesting. You think that tunes allow a greater variety than language? All right, I'll think about it. I, I feel like I don't know music enough to really answer this question. Uh, what do you think, Jordan? Well, I was going to say, like, um, to me, at least, when tunes capture more of a feeling, whereas you know, words, you can, like, imagine the feeling. So, so you feel tunes are closer to the emotional range? Yeah, when you're trying to you know, demonstrate a specific emotional range, you give a tune for that. Like if I'm trying to tell you how sad I was, a, a sad tune would get you closer. And if I use words, it won't be as precise? It wouldn't be as precise. Okay, interesting. Who else had a hand over? Yeah, what do you think? 
I think the difference is like I'd say with words, even though someone can say words in like a different manner, <laughs> like the words themselves have more limited meaning per se, versus like a tune, you could let's say let's take it Nikun for example, you could walk into a right there walking into the mirror, walking into like some other like place and like the whole like atmosphere of like whatever they're singing or whatever gives up like a whole different set of emotions or whatever, even within like a you know, boys, I see you made a mistake. I should have let you ask your question earlier because that you you just instigated a really interesting conversation. We have to sneak up in the next two minutes. Okay, very good, guys. See, guys, Yeshiva's fun. We discover what's more limiting, language or tunes. It can't be that much more interesting than discussing, I don't know, Netflix. Yeah, Natano. I'm sorry, say it again? Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess so. Oh, oh, that's interesting. No, I actually want to. I was initially, my initial reaction was negative, but maybe he's right. So language is by definition a communally constructed thing. Right? I don't have like my private language, right? But maybe tunes are less a sense of the community determines what the reaction to the tune is. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. No, what do you think? Not exactly on the idea of tunes, but it seems as though if, like, one of the important things of Shofro is the fact that you are, you know, not expressing a specific language which is limited, mm -hmm. then why are we saying the problems which are limited? Okay, look, I guess that's a good point, and it's 1259, I'm not going to address it right now, but I think we'd have to admit that there must be a flip side here. We'll have to say that despite the limitations of language, we are really dependent on it. That we can't really have a, word, a world where we'll do away with language. So as much as we're convinced, oh, language is so limiting, it doesn't capture what we want to say, maybe there's real, no, no real alternative on some level, right? That we can't really escape the need for language. So I think a good case could be made for that. That it's very limiting, and yet there's no escaping its necessity. Okay, Caleb. Uh, a bit similar to Natana, I think the other way I've always thought about like music versus like, language mm -hmm. is that when it comes to like words, you can express emotion, but when it comes to emotions, there's this deeper, raw, more primal emotion. But what that emotion is depends on who's singing the so it is a little bit similar to... A bit, yeah. Ah, but you're saying it's not true that it's a free-for-all because as or the chazans creating the emotional range here. Yeah, there is a limitation created by who's singing. Exactly. But takes a tune, Okay. All right, last comment, then we'll go to lunch. Yeah, Quincy. I think that tunes are extremely limited, just like language. The whole finish of the shofar is because it's so bland, it's so discontextual, it's so like nothingness. That allows the possibility wow, you're saying, yeah, as, well, what a finish, Quincy, we'll end with that. The anti-tune is the greatest tune. Absolutely. Wow, what, what a move. Oh, my God. All right, guys, everybody, there's a poem. Everybody have a great job.